Journey of Thetsos, Season 1, Episode 4, written by Ryan Stinson and Rain Martin, and directed by Calliope Kesters. Negrin comes back into his room and slams the door shut. He paces around the room in an attempt to release some of his pent-up anger. His attempt fails. How'd that go? Being summoned by your father is usually pretty intense. He appears sitting on the bed. He notices Negrin's scowl and frowns himself. It's complicated. My father wants me to go to the child refugee towns, or whatever they're calling it. He sits down on the bed next to Thaho, then stands back up and begins to pace around the room. He and Mom argued about it, but apparently she couldn't get him to see any sense. He sits back down at his desk and puts his head in his hands. Ah, yes. When do we go? He puts a hand on Negrin's back in an attempt to calm him, but Negrin only pushes Thaho away. Are you really going to let him do this? Send me away like this? I want to stay here and help with the war effort, but I can't do that if I'm locked away with some drooling three-year-olds. He stands and starts quite literally throwing things in a bag set out by his servants. Nothing he puts in the bag is anything he will need, and he knows he'll have to repack later, but Negrin is too angry to care. It's okay. Calm down. We'll figure this out together. Even if you can't help the war directly, you can help by staying safe. I'm sure that's all your father wants, anyway. You're really going to side against me? I thought we were friends. Negrin turns his back to Thaho and sits on his bed again. If that's how you feel, then fine. He disappears and leaves Negrin to his own thoughts. Negrin sighs and lays face down on the bed. He shouldn't have talked to Thaho that way. Now Negrin will have to wait until Thaho decides to come back before he can apologize. It makes him feel bad, but he can't fix his mistakes yet. Not until Thaho comes back. The only thing Carson can remember once he regains consciousness is him and the two Thetsos arguing with Versus over... Well, that he doesn't remember. Then all of a sudden, there were bright flashes, shattering windows, a cacophony of noise coming from every direction, and sharp burning pains that still lingered in his legs. He had no idea what had happened. He felt genuinely scared. The last time he felt this nervous was when... was the day his father died. But as quickly as everything had happened, it had fallen away into a void of black. Now, Carson's finally awake. He doesn't know where he is or what time it is. He can't hear any of the others. He feels as if he's suspended in the air, his arms outstretched like he's a flying bird. Then, he realizes that he isn't suspended. He's harnessed. He musters the courage to open his eyes slightly. His vision is still blurred from being unconscious for so long. When it clears, he sees that he's caged in some sort of glass tube that is tinted red. The inside of the tube is very bright, most likely in order to try and muddle the view of what's outside of the tubes. From what he can see, it is a very minimal room, primarily composed of metal and concrete. There are a few computers and screens that have people working at them. The way Carson is harnessed disabled the uses of his neck, but out of his peripheral vision, he can see another tube to the right of him. He both hoped and feared that the tube was the one holding Versace. His suspicions are confirmed when he hears a light cough coming from the other tube. He tries to call out to her but then realizes how hoarse his voice is as well. He clears his throat and tries again. <coughs> Versace! Carson? Are you okay? Well, the last thing I remember was being shot in the legs and tased. So I'm not doing great currently. 
Before Carson can respond, a loud buzzer sounds and he hears the swoosh of a door sliding open and closed. General McManus walks into the holding cell. Her short blonde hair barely peeks through her officer hat. Her Farhanian military uniform is decorated with several medallions and pins, asserting her as the top officer in Farhan's military. She briskly walks towards the center of the holding facility. She stands there for a moment, arms crossed behind her back. She looks at one of the captains in the room and gives a curt nod, waving her hand downward. Versace drops to the concrete floor with a thud. She feels as if her ribcage is shattered. She hears the slight yelp as Carson also experiences her same fate. She tries to muster up enough strength to lay on her elbows and look towards the Forhan general. She looks down at the struggling girl. Impressive, is it not? Years of research in both biochemistry and molecular physics led to it. We've managed to create something almost similar to an electromagnet, but for use on organic material. One of the many great innovations that Forhan has produced in the last few years. Cut to the chase already. Who are you and what do you want? You know what I want. She walks closer to the prisoner. Sweet little Versace. Look at how much you've grown. I'm shocked that you don't remember me. Your mothers and I were very close before their tragic deaths. Or is that true? That's right, you only had one mother, I forgot. At least, that's what you told yourself. You always had the illusion in your mind of a happy, regular family. To the point that you blinded yourself to the truth in more ways than one. Perhaps for good reason back then, but now that they're gone, you still choose to maintain that lie. Why is that? You aren't ashamed of them, are you, Versace? After all they've done for this country, this is how you honor them? Even your second mother was no field medic. You knew that then, and you know that now. So why can't you seem to accept that? She sees the pure anger flash in Versace's eyes. Her entire body begins to shake as she barely keeps the strength to keep herself up. Enough already! What you are trying to do will never work. We do not control them. We are only their carriers. Carriers? Really? So what you are saying is that we should kill both of you and dissect your cadavers until we find where your little friends are hiding? If you kill us, they return to the earth from whence they came. So I assume that I am supposed to be rendered unable to kill either of you now? I'm supposed to tell you that no matter what, death won't come to you? The only reason you are still alive is so that we can figure out how to use your friends. If we find that we cannot use them, then we cannot have two juveniles roaming the streets with such power at their disposal. She now walks over to the boys' holding cell. But what we have discussed today has given me a great deal of help. To celebrate your cooperation, I will allow you the gift of free movement. Only about your cell, of course. She glances back towards Versace. You, on the other hand, have given me nothing more than your nauseating banter, and therefore... She raises her hand as the invisible harness lifts the girl back into the air. You shall be given no such pleasure. She smirks at the sight of Versace struggling in her cell yet again before leaving the room. Carson can't stand the sight of Versace struggling in her harness, but he also can't bear to look away from her. What did he just do? How was he dumb enough to even manage for that information to escape him? But also, how could it possibly be helpful for them to know such base level information?
What have the last few days brought him to? Versace ends up realizing that her struggle is no use against such a powerful force, so she lets herself relax. I can feel you staring at me right now, Carson, and frankly, I don't want to. Sorry, but you're the only person I really know in this place, so what else am I supposed to do? Oh, of course. And remind me who exactly got us into this mess in the first place, and who somehow still manages to make things worse. He sighs, trying to think of how to apologize. I... I didn't mean to get us here. I should have just listened to you. I should have kept my mouth shut this whole time. I just... don't know when to stop, I guess. Well, I suggest you figure out how to stop before someone comes back into this stupid facility and you spat out your entire life story. I... You're right. I should stop. Please do. He lays against the cold, thick glass on the outside of the cell. Boredom manages to overtake him very quickly. But he doesn't want anger recess more than she already is. But eventually, boredom seems to overtake her as well. I'm sorry. It is nice to have someone to talk to. You don't have to apologize. I'm the one who messed everything up. It isn't your fault either. You were just scared and confused, like... She pauses for a long moment, choosing her next words carefully. Like I was for most of my life. Was it true? What she said about your parents? What? No, of course not. Did, did you actually believe her? She's just meant to intimidate us, is all. And I guess she feels like she needs to work that with me more than you. I don't know why. I can be intimidating, right? She gives out only the slightest of laughs. Sure, pal. You're plenty scary. Shut up. You asked. I gave you an answer. I know. Carson can feel the fatigue fall down his head and through his entire body. In a matter of only a few brief moments, he's asleep. Carson? She can't hear his reply, so she assumes he must have fallen asleep. With no one to talk to now, Versace decides to let her mind wander by itself. A bad idea seeing how it immediately went to her parents. She really didn't want to think about them. But it was hard to pull all that focus away. And when there isn't anything else to focus on, then it makes it even worse. She starts to cry thinking about the past. The last seven years of her life were horrific. She just wished that the truth didn't hurt so much. She wished that the lies she's been telling herself and everyone else could magically become real. She just... She wished her moms weren't such jerks. Thus, if we can coax this brigade to the coastline where our naval fleets will be waiting, we can force the surrender of a majority of their forces. We cannot force our heavy artillery through the mountains. Any path that crosses them has been strategically narrowed. We cannot risk barging through with only the men we have in that sector. It won't be enough. Can we divert more men towards this sector then? Sir, our top battalions are all presently engaged. I considered some form of air support, but General Rockefeller said that if any air squadrons were diverted, our ground forces would be overwhelmed, and we'd lose a majority of what land we spent the last six months gaining. Enough with his arrogance and stupidity. 
you are to contact General Rockefeller and tell him to divert all squadrons to Sector 8. Our other ground forces can hold their own where they happen to be engaged. Yes, Chancellor. Dismissed. He waves his hand towards the door, and the captain leaves the room. As he is leaving, General McManus walks into the room. Chancellor, if I may have a word? Proceed. I assume you have some form of intelligence report? Yes, Chancellor, I do. Multiple claims have been brought in by our- A sudden knock at the door startles them both. Before the Chancellor can hastily respond, the door opens and reveals- Vice Chancellor Ferris, his second in command. Oh, my apologies for interrupting. Could I have a moment with the Chancellor? No, you may not. I have important matters on my agenda. But I believe a more important matter is the fact that you now have 20 bills related to the welfare of our citizens that have been sitting on your desk for the past month. Oh boy, here we go. As the Chancellor, it is your utmost duty to uphold the needs of your citizens. It is my utmost duty to protect our citizens. And if you haven't realized, we are in the middle of a war that if I let slide for one sparse moment, can endanger a vast majority of our very citizens. And yet what you don't seem to realize is the fact that even now as Pamantia has drafted all of their citizens into war, our emigration rates are higher than they have ever been. All of our citizens have been deprived of their economic principles for the sake of the war effort. Can you not see how my hands are tied? I thought I told you to take care of those aspects at the moment. You did tell me to do that, but it's hard to do so when all of the bills require your signature and not mine. Then make it a point to the legislation that nothing will pass unless I am able to give that emergency power to you. Chancellor, they won't listen to me. Dismissed! Get the point across to them, Vice-Chancellor. With an air of disgust and anger following her, Vice-Chancellor Ferris storms out of the room. As the doors shut behind his second-in-command, Chancellor Harrison resumes his discussion. I'm sorry you had to endure that. She's been a thorn in my side for the last four months. She's good for getting you elected, but she isn't great for much else. Please proceed. Three reports came by my office today. The first one is confirming the location of Pamantian sanctuaries. It's just as we expected, they're using two of their biggest coastal cities to shelter everyone they've deemed unable to fight in the war. We also heard from this report that they're separating children and elders into separate cities. It should be simple then. We control the coast on that entire country. We'll use that to our advantage to centralize the war effort overload the tasks of their forces, and win the war. However, that leads to my second report. Naval attacks came in from Pamantia last night. They were somehow able to upgrade their current naval fleet and even expand slightly. They took our East Coast Brigade by surprise and drove them out. They've been able to lock down that shoreline in preparation for the arrival of people into the sanctuaries. That's impossible! How did they manage to upgrade their ships overnight? Believe me, sir, I'm just as perplexed as you are. We've sent in more agents into their main naval shipyards, but we haven't heard any communication thus far. We have thought that these upgrades might be due to some naval defections we've witnessed in the last few months. I want every available agent that is not otherwise engaged into a Pamantian shipyard until we figure out what is happening with their fleet. Yes, Chancellor. 
The final report actually comes from me regarding the two terrorists we apprehended yesterday. And do we have some answers? Yes and no. They did confirm our suspicions that rather than having the powers directly within their bodies, they are linked to some sort of elemental power source. But they also confirmed that these sources happen to be sentient in some form. Which explains the two disappearing figures in the building last night. Precisely. However, we still aren't any closer to knowing how we can possess that energy for ourselves. My thoughts are that if it happens to be linked to them, if we can somehow interfere with their minds, we might be able to control that power. In a perfect world, we wouldn't need two children running around in our armies at all. But, Chancellor- Continue the interrogations and try to figure out how to tap into those power sources. I will head to 0604-9982 to see if anyone there happens to have an answer. And if we can't harness their power directly, Chancellor? He rises and gives her a cold glance. For your sake, and the sake of this country, I suggest that you find a way and that you find it quickly, General. With that, he leaves the room for lunch. He has to make sure he is well fed for his travels. After all, he can't appease his master if he is famished. Negrin throws himself onto the plush bed after spending the last hour angrily packing and repacking and repacking a second time. His head has turned into a numbing void filled with only swirling thoughts about his father, the kingdom, the sanctuary city, Daho, and countless others. He thinks about how messed up this entire situation is. He thinks of how the people of this country, his country, deserve better. Instead of them going on and living their lives like they want to, they've been forced to protect the country in this gruesome, unnecessary war. Why did Forhan have to be so violent? Could they not accept at least some form of peace? The Chancellor has not been contacted by any government official in years, but it isn't entirely the Chancellor's fault. No one at the palace had ever had the courage to contact him to even attempt to negotiate a peace. We have made great strides in taking back our land. Now would be the most opportune time to attempt negotiations of peace. Still, no one dared. Not even his own father. He leaps up from the bed and grabs a notebook out of the drawer on his bedside table. He flips through the notes and notes of things his father has taught him throughout the years. It's a Pamantian tradition for the prince who will receive the throne to keep a notebook of his parents' teachings. Well, he at least wanted it to be a tradition, but Negrin is the first one to have actually gone through with it. He feels that it's important to keep a written record of history, especially since so much of what is known about old society was destroyed during the crisis decades. He also can be quite forgetful a lot of the time, so he uses the notebook to make sure nothing gets lost in his mind. As he flips through the worn pages, he sees many lists he wrote out when he was younger about his first acts as king. They were mostly childish, silly things that he wrote when he was too young to understand why his people were suffering in a war. But as he gets towards the back, they become more logical. He wrote one every year until he was 14, and then for some reason, he stopped. He guesses that he decided it was unreasonable to set out exactly what he would do when he was king, when he didn't know how long it would be until he took the throne. He finds a pencil within the sprawling mess that was his room and opens the notebook to a blank page. At the top, he writes what he always does. First acts as King of Pamantia. He underlines the title to separate it from the rest of the list and begins his list with a tiny dash. He wonders how he should phrase this in case it does happen to be a little while before he took the throne. Finally, 
he decides to take the most broad stance he can by simply writing, End the war. Just then, there's a sudden knock at the door. Some ease flows through his body as he recognizes his mother. She gives him a thin smile and sits at the foot of his bed. I see you're all packed. Yes, ready to leave the only place I've really known in my life and share an entire city with children. Nagrin, sometimes I feel that you forget the fact that you yourself are still a child. Well, it's hard to feel that way when your father tells you that the fate of an entire country will rest on your shoulders someday. I have the feeling that someday might come sooner than any of us may think. Father grows weaker with each passing day, for every day he has to think about the war. So, do you see now why he is sending you away? No, I don't see how he thinks this is right. This is his time of greatest need, and my duty, not only as a prince, but as his son, is to ensure that he is supported. You should know better than anyone that his advisors sure haven't been doing that job. He needs me, so why does it seem like he only wants to cast me aside? You are a complex boy, I'll tell you that. Have you considered that maybe he thinks that you do not want to be involved because you've said all of your life that you wished you weren't a prince? Nagrin focuses his gaze more onto his mother. He feels hurt at her words. Those were the thoughts of a child, a true child, not who I am now. I am ready to lead this country. I am ready to stand by my father's side and work towards ending this war so that our people can be happy again. I know you are, Nagrin. She rises from the bed. Your father, however, needed quite a bit of convincing. Nagrin looks up at his mother with a confused expression painted onto his face. Convincing? Of letting you stay here. You inherited many traits from my side of the family that have been passed down for many generations, but one thing you inherited directly from me was my stubbornness. Your father and I had a lengthy conversation about letting you stay. He has agreed to delay your travels for three days since the war has not moved closer to us. However, after those three days, you must go where you will be safe, Nagrin. I will not vouch for you past these next three days, so I suggest you make it count. Nagrin leaps up from the bed and wraps his arms around his mother. Surprised, the queen wraps her arms around her son after a brief moment. This lasts for a while until Nagrin finally lets go. Thank you! Neither you nor father will regret this. She smiles at his words, but she looks out the window and that hope quickly fades. She thinks back to what her country has had to deal with, what her husband has had to deal with for years. It seems like this country has only known war and violence. She just sincerely hopes that with her son as king, this country won't know that for much longer. I better not regret this, Nagrin. She gives one last look at her son before leaving his room. Nagrin sits back on the bed, elated at his father's decision to let him stay. He looks around and notices the brimming suitcase laying on the floor, the suitcase that he now has to unpack after packing it three times. He gives off a sigh and begins to unpack. After putting away a few things, he sees Thaho sitting on the edge of his bed. Thaho, you're back! I was always here, dummy! Figure might need some help unpacking, so I figured that I would pop back up and help. Nagrin's excitement fades after he remembers what he said to Thaho. Hey, listen, I, um, I'm really sorry about what I said before. I know you are. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't be here if I was mad. Y you know? Wait, what do you mean you know? Uh, duh. Uh, that's so of nature. 
Your brain is a part of you, and you are an organism which can be directly classified under nature. Thus, I can hear what passes through your brain, such as your thoughts. All of your thoughts. You could do this the whole time, and you didn't think to tell me? Of course not. People are so much better to interact with when they are genuine. If I had told you, you might not have been as genuine with me. I, I mean, I guess you're right, but hey, I can still be genuine with you, Thaho. Of course you can, Demi. I know your memory is bad, but did you already forget that I know all of your thoughts? He laughs for a moment, which causes Nagrin to laugh in return. Come on. Let's get this stuff put away. The crimson sun sets over a vast expanse of ocean waves. Chancellor Harrison stares out at the ocean, wishing that they could move his ship quicker towards his destination. Perhaps taking his private ship was not the most efficient decision, but any other ship would definitely not have given such a comfortable voyage. Now, he might have been willing to give up some of his comforts for a faster ship. The Chancellor knows they are close, however. He has seen this particular stretch of ocean before multiple times. He knows the scent, the sound, the feel of each distinct section of water from his various travels. He also knows the eerie feeling that blankets everyone's body upon approach. Within a few minutes, the ship arrives. There is no organized dock on the island, so he orders his crew to tie anchor near a rocky yet low area of coastline. Chancellor Harrison steps foot on the island whilst the rest of his crew secures the ties on the ship. He walks with a distinct purpose towards the center of the island, wanting to leave this place as soon as possible. He makes it to the center, which is noted by a craggly mountain with a small opening leading into what looks like a void. With a deep breath, Chancellor Harrison climbs into the cave. Once he is able to stand, he looks around the room, looking for the slight reflection off of the lone, dark red crystal perched in the center. He finds it and lays his hand on the smooth top edge. He is transported into a separate void where the only thing that can be heard is the swirling of the wind. He clears his throat and yells into the darkness. Lord Umbrano! Farvon. He can hear the voice of his master swirling through the wind. I have come bearing news about your mission. You have news, do you? What of the war against Pamantia? He did not expect that he would have to say anything about the war. The war is... <clears throat> the war is in our favor, as it always has been. Is that so? Tell me, how did you come to that conclusion? I am the winds, Farvan. Through the wind, I have seen many lies you have told me. Your navy, that you pride on and on about, has fallen, broken and cast into shambles. Now, your coastlines remain unguarded against a powerful sea might. Your air patrols have also given you no advantage, even though you claim they are what is winning you the war. And now, Amantia's ground forces have increased tenfold, leaving many of your finest battalions severely outnumbered and ordering retreat after retreat. Is this not what I've been seeing, Farva? He takes a moment to figure out how to respond. 
Lord Umbrano, you have tasked me with finding those who wielded the Thetzos, and I have. Oh, you petulant, naive fool. You have accomplished nothing. You have merely caught two children who are associated with the Thetzos. You've made no effort in finding their power. And beyond that, you only have two Thetzos when there are four, meaning your advantage is currently useless. I called you out for your lies, and you still maintain the audacity to stand here before me and put forth more. Lord Umbrano, I am the only Chancellor to have pledged their faith in you. I did so because I was promised a distinct advantage in this war. I have done what you have asked, and in return I have received nothing. We have the children. We will leech the Thetsos from their grasp, and with them and your forces, we can finally converge on Pamantia and rule Argerava. <laughs> we? The winds begin swirling at a higher velocity, knocking the Chancellor over. You stand here before me after accomplishing nothing and demand that you become a god? Is that what you want, Farvon? Or it is not what you shall receive? All this time, your petty games have been nothing but a thorn in my side. I am your master. And you think that we shall rule the world together? You are drastically wrong, Farvon. You act as if you are a king, when in reality you are nothing more than a pawn in this game. You have failed me time after time, but this time, you will not be given forgiveness. No, I am over your atrocities and your negligence. I realize now that if I must get something done... It feels as if the wind is an orb surrounding the Chancellor and slowly crushing him. Through the wind, he can make out a figure, or at least a spot that was far more dark than the already prevalent darkness. As it moves closer, he can see the silhouette of someone. He realizes that this someone looks distinctly like himself. The figure kneels down and suddenly shoots a hand made of pure shadows towards Chancellor Harrison's neck. As the shadow's hand latches onto his throat, his vision begins to darken from the edges as he slowly fades out of consciousness. Then I have to do it myself. Journey of Thetsos Season 1 Episode 4 was written by Ryan Stinson and Rain Martin, directed by Calliope Kesters, and edited by Calliope Kesters. Ryan Stinson is the creator of Journey of Thetsos. Production staff on Journey of Thetsos includes Executive Producer, Head Writer, and Creative Lead Ryan Stinson, Lead Director, Casting Manager, and Script Editor Calliope Kesters, Music and Effects Manager, Lead Composer, and Art Director Natalie Seed, and Associate Director, Writer, and Composer, Rain Martin. The cast of Episode 4 in order of appearance includes Jackson Tinsley as Nagrin, William Wagner III as Thaho, Hunter Dobbs as Carson, Ashley Suklal as Verses, Ansley Wilson 
as General McManus, Brian Stinson as Chancellor Harrison, Olivia Sexton as Forhan Captain, Natalie C. as Vice Chancellor Ferris, Ashley Suklal as Queen Wu Tykin, and featuring Mr. Nick as Umbrano. Writing staff for Journey of Thetsos includes Ryan Stinson, Calliope Kesters, and Rain Martin. Composition staff on Journey of Thetsos includes Natalie C., Rain Martin, Ryan Stinson, Harrison Clark, and Rebecca Collins. And editing staff on Journey of Thetsos includes Ryan Stinson, Calliope Kesters, and Mr. H.C. The main theme and logo for Journey of Thetsos was by Ryan Stinson. Want to learn more about JOT? Follow our social media platforms. We're on Instagram at official underscore J-O-T underscore podcast, on Twitter at podcast underscore J-O-T, and on TikTok at J-O-T podcast. You can also find our Discord server and YouTube channel at the links in the description of this episode or the links in any of our social media bios. Journey of Thetsis is a production of Walker and Jump Productions. Do not duplicate or directly republish any audio without the explicit consent of Walker and Jump Productions. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.